Week one, we talked about Benaiah and how we should run to the roar rather than running from the things that make us afraid. We should run to the things that we believe God has put in our heart to do, even if they scare us. And then week two, my good friend, John Spaschek, delivered a great message on another one of David's mighty men named Eleazar, who fought until his hand literally froze to the sword. And he challenged all of us that we need to fight for our dreams. And then last week, I talked about a guy by the name of Josheb Beshebeth, who was David's captain of the guard, who raised his spear against 800 to 1 odds. And we learned last week that it's really our decisions that determine our destiny and create a ripple effect that can alter the course of history. Now, if you missed any of those messages, I would highly encourage you to jump onto our website, go to the media page, and listen to the podcast. It's been a very inspiring series. I've heard a lot of great things from people who have been encouraged by it. Um, But this week, I want to do something maybe a little bit different. You know, last week, um, I told you in the message that one of my favorite movies of all time is the trilogy, Lord of the Rings. And so today, I wanted to show you a short little 20-second clip that probably has one of my all-time favorite quotes ever in a movie. And just to set the scene for what you're about to see, Aragorn, who's the king, is asking Eowyn a question as they're getting ready to head into a battle. Eowyn is a princess, and she wants to fight, but Aragorn asks her a question. I know it's whispered tones in the conversation. In case you didn't hear it, she said, you know, after he asked her what she fears, she says, I don't fear neither death nor pain. She said, well, what do you fear? A cage to be locked behind bars until youth and old age accept them, and all chance of valor or bravery has gone beyond recall or desire. I think the reason I love that quote so much is because it resonates with me. My greatest fear in this life is that I would be locked behind bars of fear until youth and old age accept them, and all chance of doing anything significant with my life has gone beyond recall or desire. And yet, despite that fear being so common amongst so many people, I find that so many people find themselves in exactly that place, locked in a cage, in a prison of fear. You know, listen, I love preaching inspirational messages. This series has been so much fun. But I also recognize that as we're talking about chasing lion-sized dreams, that some of you here today feel as though you maybe are in a pit with a lion, figuratively speaking. You don't have any strength to fight that lion, and you feel like you're going to be eaten alive. Some of you here feel like chasing dreams is nothing more than a pipe dream and is really so far beyond the realm of possibility when you think about the hell that you're currently living in. And you can't relate to the things that we've been talking about in this series as we chase lion-sized dreams. What does that mean? I can't even make it through the day. We've been talking about chasing lions, and there are some people here today in our congregation who can't even see the light of day and are even despairing of life itself. It has been a hard week this week. As pastor of this church, I get privy to a lot of prayer requests that come in and and needs and, and There are no less than five people, five stories I've heard of this week. People in our congregation, two of those five are in this service today who are living in hell, who are in a pit, who are in a cave, 
maybe even despairing of life itself. It's been a hard week. And I realize that some of you may be in a pit of depression and despair and you feel like you'll never get out of it. Today, as I was preparing this message, I believe with all my heart that God has given me a message to encourage those of you who are in such a place. We've all been in a pit before. We've all gone through difficult times. And when you're in a pit, chasing lions may sound like a good title for a book, but it certainly doesn't sound like the script for your life. Maybe you're just trying to figure out if it even matters for you to continue living. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you part of my story in that when my first wife left, decided that she didn't want to be married anymore, I cried myself to sleep every night for months on end. And I would tell people during that season that the dreams for my life had grown quite small. There were no more dreams during that season of being used by God. There were no dreams of going into ministry. I was just wondering if I would ever be deserving of love again. Would anybody want to marry me? Would I ever have children? I couldn't think about chasing lion-sized dreams when I just was despairing of life itself. And there are some people here today who feel the same way. We've all gone through difficult seasons. Some more difficult than others. But because we all do, our ability, listen, our ability to navigate these seasons and allow the distress to develop us because distress and development go hand in hand. That is what separates lion chasers from those who just barely make it through the day and live day to day. When it comes to difficult circumstances, you have two choices. You can either complain about them or make the most of them. Whether those circumstances are a result of your own actions or the result of somebody doing something to you, lion chasers make the most of those circumstances. Sometimes the circumstances we're trying to change are the very circumstances that God is using to try and change us. We're asking God to deliver us from circumstances and to change our circumstances. And he's saying, no, 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 I put you in this very spot to change you. We need to learn the lessons that God is trying to teach us when, they're, when we're in these seasons. Instead of trying to get out of them, let's try to get something out of them. What God wants to do through you, he must first do in you. And oftentimes, it takes a season in a pit or a cave for him to work in us. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. I want to encourage those of you who are in a pit and have given up on your dreams. And even if you're not in a pit here today, just wait. Because we all go through seasons of discouragement and despair. You will be sooner or later. And what you hear today, I think, may help you when you get into that season. This whole section of Scripture that we've been in for this series in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 39, is written kind of near the end of King David's life and really kind of commemorate or pay homage to these 37 mighty men, David's SEAL Team 6, if you will, the best of the best, and their exploits that have happened at different phases and, and times during their service to David. But I'm going to go a little bit off script today. The last three weeks, we've highlighted 
one of those mighty men in each of those weeks. First it was Benaiah, then it was Eleazar, then it was Josheb, Beshebeth. But rather than highlight one of those guys, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different today. I want to use a story that happened while these men were with David in a pretty dark time, just like some of you may be in today. There's a random verse right in the middle of this passage of Scripture in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 23 that I want to look at and then take you back to the time that it's referring to. 2 Samuel 23, 13 says, During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? The cave of Adullam. But let me tell you, this was no five-star resort. This was a last resort. This was the last place on earth that David wanted to be. But sometimes that is when God has you right where he wants you. This particular verse is alluding to a time earlier in David's life before he even became king. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament narrative and the life of King David, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel while he was a teenager because God had rejected the current king whose name was Saul. But unlike in our day and time when, you know, we vote on a president in November and they're sworn in in January, it's not quite a quick transition of power in those Bible days. See, it would be 15 years or so before Dave, from the time David was anointed as king to the time he would actually become king. He became king at 30 years old. And so his story is that he was, you know, the youngest of eight boys born to a guy named Jesse. Prophet Samuel comes into town when God tells him that it's time for a new king. David gets anointed and, you know, goes back to tending sheep. That's what he did. He was a, he was a shepherd. But then his father sends him to take some food to his brothers who are in a battle with the Philistines and and King Saul's army. And when he arrives on the battle scene, David hears this, this giant on the opposing force with the Philistines mocking their army and their God. And he gets filled with righteous indignation and in a familiar story, even to those that don't know much about the Bible, David takes a smooth stone out of the brook and puts it in his slingshot and kills Goliath which puts David in the national spotlight. He's rescued the nation of Israel from this intimidating foe, and he comes into the service of King Saul as as his personal musician. And because of his military exploit, he would send David out on expeditions and assignments, and because the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him when Samuel anointed him, he was successful in all of his ventures. And he began to get really popular the more victories he, you know, accumulated on his belt, another notch on the belt. And the more this popularity grew, the more King Saul got jealous that David was becoming even more popular than him to the point where Saul had had enough and he starts going on the hunt for David. So if we back up one book from 2 Samuel into 1 Samuel, in chapter 21, we see him fleeing from Saul fleeing for his life. And he actually comes to this guy named Achish, who was the king of Gath. Do you know who else was from Gath? Goliath. And I found that interesting because I think maybe there are some people here today who are standing before an enemy 
that they once thought they had defeated. In the same way that King or that David was standing before a king whose giant he had he had slain a couple years earlier. Maybe some people here facing addiction that they thought they had beaten, an addiction to drugs, an addiction to pornography. You thought you'd beat it, and yet here you are at the mercy of this king enemy again. And David, fearing for his life, doesn't know what to do in this moment. And so he fakes being insane. He, he pretends to go crazy. He starts drooling, and drool is running down his beard. He's scratching at the doorposts in an effort to try to avoid this king of Gath, putting him to death or putting him in prison. And so the king says, what would you bring him in here for? Get him out of my sight. And so they send David away, and he escapes imprisonment or death. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we're going to pick up his story. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So here we are now at the very place at which 2 Samuel 23 verse 13 was alluding to. They're at the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So David escapes Gath and goes to the cave of Adullam, which is only, it's about 10 miles from Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. It's, in a, it's located in the Valley of Elah, which is in the vicinity where he actually killed Goliath. And it's in the cave of Adullam that God does something in David's life that changes the direction of his life forever. And I want us to travel with David into the cave of Adullam today to learn some lessons. I want to point out some observations that I made as I researched this and looked at his story. First, his family in the cave with him. In verse 1, we see that. We don't know exactly how long David was in the cave, but when he first got to the cave, he was just looking for protection. He wanted to be alone. He was hiding. He didn't want anybody to know where he was, maybe calculating or thinking about what his next move should be. We don't know how the word got out, but word gets out, and the first thing that happens is his family comes to his aid. And I think they came for two reasons. First of all, to support him, which is an interesting turn of events, because if you know David's story, his brothers were initially very jealous of him because he was the youngest of eight, and they all got passed over by Samuel as he was anointed to be king. But once they hear that he's running for his life, those feelings are all gone as they come to be by his side and support him. But not just for support, I think they also came to him for safety. Because I don't think Saul only wanted to kill David, I think they wanted, he wanted to kill David's family as well. Because if you remember, David's brothers were in Saul's army. And they had to desert Saul's army to join David. And desertion meant death. So if you're in a cave here today, I want to encourage you to seek out your family. Your family is important when you're going through a difficult season. And if you don't have a supportive family, reach out to your spiritual family. We are called to carry each other's burdens. You need your family when you're going through the cave. What am I trying to say? There is provision in the cave. There's provision in the cave. Family exists partly to provide the support and encouragement that we need in dark times. There's provision in the cave. After his family come his friends. Verse 2 tells us that 400 men join him. And I don't know about you, but if I'm running for my life 
from an insanely jealous king who's trying to kill me. I would welcome 400 men who can help fight with me and protect me into the cave with me, right? But these weren't just any men. How did it describe them? Look at verse two again. All those who were in distress, in debt, and discontented gathered around him. What a group of guys. Distressed. They were under pressure. They were stressed. They all had troubles of one kind or another, mostly probably because of King Saul. Next, they were in debt. They had too many credit cards. I think there's probably some people here today that can relate with that. You know, in that day and age, it was actually illegal. It was against the law for one Jew to charge another Jew interest. But the implication here is that King Saul was lending money to people with high interest rates in the hopes that they would be loyal to him because they owed him. But instead, these guys just skip out on their debts. They were discontent. They were so deeply resentful and bitter and and hostile because they had been wronged and mistreated by King Saul. What a group of guys to join your side. These are the malcontents of Israel. But rather than just dismiss these guys, say, hey, you got, I got plenty of my own problems. I can't deal with all of your problems. What does David do? He rallies these guys to his side, and this would eventually become his army. And among those 400 would be those 37 mighty men that we read about in 2 Samuel 23. How many of you heard the saying, misery loves company? Pretty common, popular saying, right? Misery loves company. That's usually kind of referred to, and we think about it in a negative way, right? People just commiserate together, and misery loves company. But what I like is what Mark Batterson actually says about that saying in his book. I kind of like his perspective on it. He says this, I think it reveals something about our human nature. He says, we can bear just about anything if we don't have to bear it alone. Like Jonathan, we need an armor bearer to climb the cliff with us. Like Moses, we need Aaron and her to hold up our arms. And like David, we need some mighty men to fight with us and for us. The tendency for most people, though, who feel depressed is to what? To withdraw, to isolate, to get alone. Like David, they crawl into a cave for self-preservation and protection. And I want to encourage you today, if you're in a pit of despair, resist the temptation to isolate yourself and withdraw. The New Testament fulfillment of this can be found in Galatians 6.26, where Paul tells us that we're supposed to carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We need people in our life that can lift us up when we're down. It protects our hearts from bitterness. And that's what I'm trying to say is that there is protection in the cave. His family comes, there's provision. His friends come, there's protection in the cave. What is happening to you is not nearly as important as what is happening in you. And a lot of times it's times in the cave when we need godly people and friends who will encourage us and speak life to our situation and remind you of God's promises for your life to offer protection for your heart. There is protection in the cave. Next is faith in the cave. And this is where I want to spend most of my time today. We talked about his family in the cave, his friends in the cave. What happens with his faith in the cave? The cave is where David's faith is really put to the test. See, God is preparing David for the throne. The cave is going to be David's 
spiritual seminary, if you will, his, his boot camp. When you enlist in the army, they don't just send you out onto the battlefield. You go to boot camp first. You're trained. You get physically and emotionally fit. You're instructed in a specific style of warfare, specific skills. You learn how to use weapons and take orders. And dealing with these 400 guys is going to teach David how to eventually rule over the 12 separate tribes of Israel. He's also learning how to train an army, which, by the way, would become the most powerful army that Israel had ever seen. God is preparing David for his future. And God deliberately sends these types of guys for David to work with and deal with and train. There is preparation in the cave. There's preparation in the cave. There's provision, there's protection, and there is preparation in the cave. Whatever God calls us to do, he prepares us to do. And most of us want to realize our dreams. It's fun to talk about the things that we believe God has created us for, but none of us want to pay the price and the pain of preparation to actually chase the line of our dream. So when I don't see the point of the cave I'm in and I feel like my life is being dismantled, perhaps God's preparation for your dream is packaged as pain. And maybe if we could see it that way, it wouldn't take the pain away, but it would give the pain a purpose. Is God's preparation for your calling and your destiny being packaged as pain? What did David do while he was in that cave? We wouldn't know if the Holy Spirit hadn't inspired him to write down what was in his heart and in his head during that time. There are three Psalms in the book of Psalms that are known as the cave Psalms. And they all have a very different um, tone to them when you read them. And I've kind of inserted my own personal feelings and thoughts on the order in which these Psalms were written. I don't know this to be true. I didn't read this anywhere. But when you look at the tone of them as you read them, I feel like in Psalm 142, I think he wrote that one first when he was all alone. As you see David on his face crying out to God. Then Psalm 57 is another psalm he wrote while in the cave. And you see him on his knees. And in Psalm 34, I can see David on his feet as he writes these words. And part of the maturing process in the life of any person, believer or not, Christ follower or not, is learning how to cope with the dark dreary, depressing, and discouraging times in life. And if you are a Christ follower that wants to pursue your dreams, that wants to chase the lion, it's especially important that you learn how to deal with these discouraging times in your life. Learning from the times when we may have failed, fallen, and been foolish, it strengthens our faith and prepares us for our destiny. I want to highlight just a couple of verses from each of those Psalms today. In Psalm 142, we can really see the condition of David's soul. In verse 3, he says, When my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. The first thing I notice about this is David was disoriented. My spirit grows faint within me. He says some translations use the word overwhelmed. 
David's spirit is devastated as this pile of trials and tribulations are crushing in on him, and he's overwhelmed with fear, feels helpless. He's being hunted by King Saul and the army of Israel, and the enemy has secretly set a trap for him, we read. He's surrounded by 400 400 hurting men, burdened with their problems, thinking that David's going to be able to help them, and he's just trying to figure out how he's going to stay alive. He's desperate, crying out to God, ready to give up. And I think there might be some people here today that feel like they're ready to give up. And I can almost imagine as I read this psalm, seeing David sitting in a cave with his head in his upturned hands, just crying out to God with despair in his soul. We've all felt overwhelmed at times with our problems and what other people expect of us. The next verse, verse four, he says, look and see there is no one at my right hand No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. How many of you have ever thought that before? How many of you have said that before? Would anybody know if I didn't exist anymore? That's what David is saying here. Does anybody care for me? That's why I think he wrote this one first before his family even came to him because he's talking about no one being concerned for him. No one cares for my life. He felt deserted. First he was disoriented, then I say he's deserted. He's been the darling of the nation just a few years ago, and now he feels all alone. And his feelings are not necessarily an accurate indicator of what is true. There were people that loved David, that cared about him, but because they weren't physically present with him, he didn't think that anyone cared about him. Sometimes when we're in a cave experience, we can't really sort out our feelings until... We dump them out. Just like our laundry, you can't sort it until you just dump it out. That's what David is doing here. He's just dumping all of his feelings out before the Lord so that he can try and make sense of it. Maybe God can put the pieces back together for him. The great truth about this, though, is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what you feel, no matter what your circumstances are, you are never alone. You may be isolated from people, but you are not isolated from God. You may live alone, but Jesus said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Verse 6 of Psalm 142, it says, listen to my cry, for I am desperate, in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me. They are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison. He was depressed. He was disoriented. He felt deserted. He was depressed. I've heard depression described by people who suffer with it as a prison, a prison a suffocating prison where you feel all alone, locked up in a cage. David felt like giving up, and there might be some people, like I said here today, that feel like giving up, that they're trapped in a prison of fear, that the darkness is just going to swallow them whole. I came here to tell you, don't give up. If that's you here today, don't give up. You're not alone. God's got you. He is with you. But David didn't stay in that low spot. As we continue reading the cave Psalms, I love the shift that I see happens here because something happens in the cave that changes David's perspective. He begins to pray. He did what James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us. Draw near to God and he will what? He'll draw near. Alive. I'm surrounded by lions, David says. That's you here today. Do what David did 
and cry out to the Lord for mercy. What else did David do? Verse 2 of 142, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. Too often I find that when people are in a cave, all they want to do is tell other people about the misery they're in, right? Instead, why don't we take our complaints up, take them to God, the one who cares for us, the one who made us, the one who actually has the power to change our circumstances, take our complaints to God. Have you ever done that? Been so brutally honest and raw with God that you just laid it all out there? So many times we think we've got to approach God with this pious, you know, sense of prayer where we have to candy coat things because we don't want to, you know, offend God with the things that we're feeling or thinking. God knows what you're going through. He knows what's in your heart anyway. Just lay it out before him. Tell him the names of people that are hurting you. Tell him that you're considering taking your own life and you need to know if there's a purpose for your existence here. Present your complaints to the Lord. David poured out his complaint before the Lord and declared to him all of his trouble. And the next thing he did was he worshiped. He worshiped. He cried aloud to the Lord. He presented his complaints and then he worshiped. Psalm 57, verses 7 to 11. Listen to this and and see if you can't hear the shift and the change in David's heart and in his posture. My heart, oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. He had to say it twice. It's almost like he was reminding himself what his commitment was. I will sing and make music, he says. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples for great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David moves here from focusing on his problems to focusing on God. And when he does that, it produces praise in him. That's what happens here. Sometimes the best thing you can do when you're in a cave is just to praise him. I know you don't feel like it, but praise him anyway because there's power in your praise. We can't mistake God's silence for, our, for his absence because when he's silent, you've got to hear your own voice declaring aloud that your trust is in the one who made the heavens and the earth. You've got to remind yourself that God is bigger than your problems and that even when you're in the cave, God is still good and he is still worthy of your praise. He's worthy even when you're in the cave. Listen, we need to understand that feelings are not the evidence of the presence of God. Too many of us are waiting for the Holy Ghost goosebumps. We want to feel God, and if we don't feel God, that must mean he's not there with us. Listen, if we always felt God, we wouldn't need faith. I'm going to say that again. If you always felt the presence of God, you wouldn't need faith, and it's only by faith that we can please God. And that's one of the purposes of cave times in our lives to teach us to walk by faith and not by feelings. If you're going to chase the line in your life, then you're going to go through some cave times. And when you do, will you still praise him? Because he's strengthening your faith in the cave. The cave is preparing you for your calling. 
what happens when you praise him in the cave. It has this amazing ability to change our perspective. There is power in our praise. Our confidence begins to grow. Our faith increases. When you begin to focus on the majesty and the glory and the splendor and the strength of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all of a sudden our problems don't seem so um, insurmountable anymore in the, in the light of His beauty, His glory, His majesty, His grace. Praise changes our perspective, grows our faith, So I think that these three Psalms have, as I said, a unique and important insight into the process we go through in the cave. Like I said, it's my opinion that he wrote Psalm 142 first before his family even joined him. I could see David on his face. Then Psalm 57, I see him on his knees as he begins to make a decision to shift his focus from his problems to praise. And you see this optimism return to his voice and his his words. But then there's Psalm 34, which I haven't read from yet. But it's also a cave psalm. And something definitely shifts even greater in David's spirit when he penned these words. I see him standing on his feet as he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is writing this from a cave. Taste and see that God is good, he says. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Check out this last verse. I love this. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When you begin to praise God, the lions that are lying in wait to devour you begin to grow weak as you wait on the Lord and focus on Him and praise Him in the storm, praise Him in the cave, and you declare what is true, not what you see, not what you feel, but what you know to be true. The lions grow weak. Yes, they're still hungry. Yes, they want to eat you alive, but they begin to grow weak as you trust in the Lord. Love that. The righteous cry out, verse 17, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Some of you here today are brokenhearted. You need to know he's close. He's closer than a whisper and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from some of them, from all of them. Do you see the shift in David's spirit? Do you hear the hope that is in his language? What shifted? Because his circumstances haven't changed. He's still in the cave. Saul is still hunting him down and wants to kill him. What changed all of a sudden? There's power in our praise. I believe his praise, as he began to praise God in that moment, I think the Holy Spirit kind of jogged his memory a little bit and he remembered the word of the Lord that came through the prophet Samuel that said he would be the next king of Israel and what God has spoken will come to pass. So what am I afraid of? Because God's will is going to be done in my life. 
There's power in our praise to make the lions weak. As I close, I just want to look at the first part of verse 5 back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. I don't know how much time transpired between 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 when he entered the cave and verse 5 when he leaves the cave. It could have been months. It could have been years. But look at what happens in verse 5. The prophet Gad comes to David and says, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. Gad instructs David to leave the cave of safety and go back to Judah, to the very place that King Saul is waiting to kill him. Why would he tell him to leave safety and go to Judah? Because there's a lion to chase. You can't stay in this cave, David. You've got a calling to fulfill. How is he ever going to become king of Israel if he stays in the cave? How will David ever learn to trust God if he stays safe in the cave? God is calling him to step up, step out, and trust God with his life. He is strengthening his faith. You know, I started my message today with a clip from Two Towers from Lord of the Rings where Aragorn, the king, asked Eowyn, what do you fear? And she said, a cage to stay behind bars till use and old age accept them and all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. I want to finish that clip and continue it with the way the king responded to her fear. He said, you are a daughter of kings, a shield maiden of Rohan. I do not think that will be your destiny. Can I tell you something here today? You are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are citizens of his kingdoms. And if your fear is that you'll never have the chance of valor, then I can guarantee you that that does not need to be your destiny. If you're in a cave today, let me tell you this. If you're in a cave, listen, God's not mad at you. So many people think that God is mad at them when they're in a cave, when they're depressed, when they're down. God's not mad at you. In fact, David even said he is close to the brokenhearted. You may never experience the nearness of his presence like you will when you're brokenhearted, when you're crushed in spirit. There's provision in the cave. There's protection in the cave. Preparation happens in the cave, but you cannot live in the cave. Eventually, you've got to come out of the cave. And I believe God sent me here to prophetically declare to some people today, don't stay in the stronghold. You've got to go to Judah. Judah is the land of your destiny. You've got a calling to fulfill. You've got a lion to chase. Don't stay in the stronghold. Come out of the cave and chase the lion. If you're in the cave of Adullam, give God the sacrifice of praise. Let God write music in you and through you. I don't think David realized when he was in the cave that he would pen words that would inspire millions of people. Even 3,000 years later around the globe, you never know the ripple effect of your decision to offer up a sacrifice of praise when you're in the midst of the cave. See what God will do. Come out of the cave. Don't stay in the stronghold. Go to Judah. Chase that lion. And you'll look back on this season with fond memories. Fond memories. 
because they forged faith in you. So keep on keeping on because the best is yet to come. Listen, I, I shared that story of crying myself to sleep every night until for months I would pray and ask God to restore my marriage, to bring my wife back. And he didn't answer. And so I basically flipped God off and said, screw you, I'm done doing it your way because this, your way got me nowhere. So I turned to alcohol, started smoking pot, anything I could do to numb the pain. I self-medicated because I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to experience this pain I was feeling. Fortunately, God kept me on a short leash. And on December 31st, 2004, a night on which I was supposed to ring in the new year with my brother getting stoned. I instead made a decision to go to church instead. Don't know why. Just said, call my brother up and said, you know what? I'm out tonight. I'm actually going to go to church. I can't do this anymore. So I went to church and I made a decision to offer up a sacrifice of praise in the midst of my cave. And when I did, I felt the presence of God flood my heart and my soul again like I hadn't in years. And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say to me, you're my son and I have a plan for your life. And it was that decision. Listen to me, people. There's some people that need to hear this today. It was that decision as I rededicated my life to the Lord in that season of singleness, that cave time I was in. I said, Lord, I'm going to consecrate my life to you. No longer would I find my identity from being loved by a woman. I would find my identity by being loved by the King of Kings. I was a son of his. I was a child of the King, and he had a plan for my life. And that decision, that consecration, that season of singleness, that cave time, I wouldn't trade for the world because that is what prepared me to be the man that Kelly needed me to be, that my boys need me to be, that this church needs me to be as the pastor. When you offer up a sacrifice of praise in your cave and you allow God to shape character in you, you'll chase your life. You'll come out of the cave and you'll go to Judah where your destiny is waiting for you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that is present in this moment right now. I know that you're speaking to hearts. God, I couldn't even write this message without tears streaming down my face because I knew that there were some people here today that are feeling hopeless, that are maybe even considering taking their own lives because they don't think that they matter. They don't feel like there's ever going to be a purpose to them being alive. But right now, you are speaking life to them. You are whispering their name in their ears saying, you're my child. I have a plan for you. Come out of the cave. Come out of the cave. Don't stay in the stronghold. Your family is here. There's provision in the cave. Your friends are here. There's protection in the cave. Preparation happens in the cave. But we can't stay in the cave. Eventually, you've got to make a decision to lift up your eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we offer up a sacrifice of praise to you, Jesus. the one who took our sin and shame because we couldn't live this life 
trying to uphold the standards of the law in our own strength. You had to do it for us and you took the punishment of our sin so that we could be restored to a relationship with you so that you could put your Holy Spirit inside of us and give us the power we need to live the life you've called us to live. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. I just want to ask you to boldly lift up your hand right now so that we can pray and invite you into God's family and you can experience this journey that you will never regret. It's not an easy life. There will be challenges and there will be caves. But Jesus said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. If you want to know Jesus, just lift your hand. Anybody here today? I see that hand in the back. Let's just pray together as a family. Jesus, I need you. I can't do it on my own. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I know that you died for my sins. And I ask you to cleanse me, wash me, make me clean. I invite you to come in and live in my heart. Lord, give me the strength and the power I need to follow you for the rest of my life. Lord, if there's anybody here that's despairing of life, God, I pray that you'd give them the courage they need to reach out and ask for help. We're here. Your lion is waiting. I know it feels like there's lions lying in wait for you, waiting to devour you. the lion of the tribe of Judah is living inside of you. And no weapon formed against you will prosper. All those who rise up against you will fall. Lord, I thank you for the healing work that you're doing in people's hearts even now. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Church, I love you guys.